were scurfing, which is on a surfboard, in the surf, being pulled by a boat into the surf, just like what they do on jet skis nowadays. But the boat wasn't really designed for the surf and we got caught on the inside of the whitewash and the boat tipped over and ran over the top of me with a double motor. So I was actually pretty lucky to be alive. I remember um, going into the last race and Grant Beck came up and she said, Barbara, you know that all you have to do is beat this girl and get three points in front of this girl and get them. I said, Grant, I don't care. Don't tell me this because I can't control it. I'm just going to go out there and do the best that I can. And he said, well, be careful because if you do really well, you could win and it could ruin your life. <laughs> never done that in my career before. I look behind me, there's only one girl. And I went, oh my God, I've spent 25 years or 26 years proving to myself and other people that I can sail around boys really fast and I'm really good at it. I actually don't need to prove it to anybody anymore. And I just started laughing. Hi everyone and welcome along to episode 15 of Broadreach Radio, the Yachting New Zealand podcast. My name is Michael Brown and today we talk to the rainbow girl of New Zealand sailing. Barbara Kendall collected the full range of Olympic medals, gold, silver and bronze. But on top of that, she's also the only Kiwi woman to win medals at three consecutive Olympics and only New Zealand female to go to five Olympic Games. She also won 11 Windsurfing World Championships medals, four of them gold, and 25 national championships. For the past 15 years, she's been heavily involved with the International Olympic Committee and more latterly has been a vice president of the International Surfing Federation, playing a key role in surfing's inclusion onto the program for the Olympic Games. Barbara talks about what influence her brother Bruce had on her, the time she was told she would never windsurf again, how her success changed her life, how she managed to juggle being an elite athlete with motherhood, and the moment she knew it was time to retire. She also delves into her work with the ISC, as well as her experiences on Dancing with the Stars and Celebrity Treasure Island. It was a fascinating and wide-ranging interview, and I hope you enjoyed as much as I did putting it together. Barbara Kendall, welcome to the show. Cool. Good to be here. Let's see how it goes. <laughs> well, I think it's appropriate um, to have you on Broadreach Radio at this time because today would have been the opening ceremony of the Tokyo Olympics, but that's obviously been delayed by COVID-19 COVID and will now all going well, of course, uh, take place at this time next year. So, um, Barbara, would you have been in Tokyo for these Olympics if they'd been on schedule? Yes, I'm actually a vice president of the International Surfing Association and our surfing is making its debut at the Olympic Games in Tokyo. So we worked really hard over the last sort of eight years, four years uh, to get surfing into the Olympic Games. So it's a very exciting pathway. And then boom, with COVID uh, disrupting everything, it's now obviously being delayed till um, next year, but um, I will be there anyway if it happens next year with uh, with surfing. So it's pretty exciting. So what about your involvement with the IOC? Because you've had um, a lot of roles uh, since your time as an athlete. Are you still involved on that front? Yes. Yeah, so I was um, became an IOC member in it was 2005 right through um, until 2009, and then I was just in helping on the Athletes Commission and then got re-elected as an IOC member from 2011 to 2016 when my time finished um, because I was always under the Athletes banner and they've kept me on uh, within the International Olympic Committee's Women in Sport Commission. So I still sit on that commission uh, representing, you know, gender equity and all the things that happen around women in sport. So you've obviously worn a lot of hats in your time. What's kind of been your general approach to these roles? Well, the great thing is coming from New Zealand, we come in with a really open mind in the fact that, you know, we can do anything. And I came in with sort of like with glum, guns blazing 
it's the beginning of the role, you know, wanting to change the world and wanting to make things better and not realizing that you that I was coming into an old establishment that obviously that had been around since 1896 and there's a lot of history and realizing that a big huge organization takes a long time to implement change especially one that has a lot of protocols and history and traditions and all those sorts of things so um, it, it took a while to sort of learn how how everything worked how you implement change and how you can create um, create programs or cre- create a difference or create a change within inside the organisation. That took quite a long time to figure out. And now it's great because I have so many contacts within inside the organisation. So when we're working on different projects, uh, you know who's straight to go to, who you can get to sort of back you up in different issues. And, um, you know, so I still cont- uh, continue to be quite close to the people within inside the international um, within the IOC. Are there things in place now you wish would have been um, in existence maybe during your time as a as an athlete? Um, yeah, yes and, yes and no. Um, well, when I first came in, the athletes were to be seen and not heard within the, you know, the hallways or the session within the International Olympic Committee. Um, there was a certain... Uh, culture that we were lucky to be there and uh, we're not really meant to be IOC members and there were a lot of members within the within the mix that didn't really want athletes around which was which was quite interesting to me and I always wondered why but as time rolled through um, the athletes that started coming to the commission well why can't we speak up why can't we do this you know why what why are these restrictions in place and it just, it took a lot of time, but we, we keep persevering, keep persevering, keep persevering, and to, to have athletes commissions to, to be able to be formed, to be accepted, so they could be listened to, to get athletes sitting on executive boards, to get athletes involved in organising committees, to get athletes involved in international federations, and all decision-making bodies that actually affect athletes, and it was a, it was quite frustrating how slow it went, but as I look back now and see how far Athletes Commission have come. For instance, now every Athletes Commission in the world is eligible for $10,000 to help run programs, help meet, you know, help have their voice heard instead of having to be volunteers and do it out of their own pocket. And, and the, many athletes didn't have money to be able to make that happen. So when I look back now, I wouldn't like to have changed anything because I've been in this evolution of athletes commissions and having their voices heard and now they're in now it's an amazing platform if you're coming in as an athletes commission representative what you can do and how you can make change and um whereas back when i came in it took a lot longer and it's so good to see the change and the progress that we've actually made so you went to five Olympic Games as a competitor. Do you still kind of get that buzz when you go to it now as a, an administrator? Uh, yes and no. Nothing beats working four years, 24-7, with your aim of trying to win a medal at the Olympic Games. It's a very simple uh, lifestyle because you have one goal one challenge to be the best that you can be once every four years so it makes life quite simple and then when you do it or you're involved in helping someone do that it's it is very rewarding when you go in as an official and you've sort of been on the outskirts you've been involved but not intimately involved where it obsesses your life and you know you eat breathe sleep trying to be the best you can be it is slightly different. It's still kind of exciting, but it's not quite as rewarding as when you've sort of dedicated your life to it um, instead of just sort of pushing paper around. So for me, it was a lot more rewarding going as an athlete than as an official, um, even though it was great to see it and I'd never, ever change your world, but I still rate being an athlete probably um, the best, my best Olympic experiences. Mm. Well, I'd, I'd like to drill down and I guess into more detail about your Olympic sailing because there's certainly a lot in there. As I said, um, five Olympic Games as a competitor, um, but you also won a medal of every colour 
Um, also the first New Zealand female to win gold in 40 years. Um, uh, only Kiwi woman to win medals at three consecutive Olympics and only New Zealand female to go to five Olympics. How did you do it? <laughs> That's quite good stats, isn't it? I don't know. I never really thought about all those stats. I just thought about what I wanted to do next. And so when uh, windsurfing became Olympic in 1992 for the first time for women, that was a no-brainer. You know, I'd, I'd been a world champion by winning sort of like it was called the Production World Championships in 1987. Bruce won the gold medal in 1988. And then so when after that they decided, you know, women's windsurfing in the Olympic Games, it was sort of like, okay, that's where I want to go. But because uh, I'd been competing in a professional circuit, uh, earning prize money, racing around the world, competing in like wave sailing, slalom, course racing, I didn't want to sacrifice that circuit because there was money and I had sponsors to do the Olympic sailing because there was no money and no nothing happening. So I only got into the Olympic class probably two years before Barcelona and then I'd go back and race a few times in the pro circuit. Um, so Barcelona was uh, it was it was an interesting it was great you know to have that uh, goal and eight months before the Olympic Games I actually broke my wrist and really badly and was told by the specialist who was sewing me together that I'd probably never ever windsurf again and that was like three months before the Olympic trials so they had to Yachting New Zealand actually had to go um, against you know, get some lawyers onto it and it, and change the date of the Olympic trials because I was like the benchmark for the for the level of New Zealand's windsurfing in New Zealand and they didn't want to hold a trial without me. This upset, you know, the other girls within the fleet and they actually took Yachting New Zealand to court telling them that they weren't allowed to do that. So there was a bit of furore around um, the trials getting to Barcelona and also it was, I didn't know if I was going to be able to windsurf again because I was in the cast. I'd, I'd shattered my scaphoid bone. Fortunately, when I came out of my cast, um, I was actually able to hang on to the, the boom and actually windsurf again, although it took me a little while to get up to strength. And then Yachting New Zealand, they delayed the trials, gave me another month, three, four weeks or something to train. And thank goodness I'd won the trials. But that little... Um, accident actually really changed it was quite a big accident changed my attitude to uh leading up into the olympic games instead of thinking oh you know i was entitled i felt like i was a bit entitled to go i was a world champion and my brother was an olympic gold medalist um you know it, it, all the ducks were in a row it really said gosh i'm so lucky to be alive i'm so lucky to even be campaigning so it changed my energy and my attitude and i don't think if that happened i wouldn't have won the gold medal because there was a sense of urgency as well urgency and fun and uh, leading up into Barcelona, plus I had no pressure because every day I got that little bit better every time I went sailing, went training. Really lucky that I had Bruce and Grant Beck as a coach and Bruce, my brother, sort of pushing me and guiding me and helping me get faster every single day. So by the time I got to the Olympic Games, it was just like, oh, yeah, it was actually everyone else lost. You know, they made lots of stupid mistakes and I was just having a good old time at the Olympic Games. And, you know, people asked me, what games were my favourite? And I'd have to say Barcelona. We had an amazing team. And it was the only Olympic Games where we were at the, the sailing venue is at the heart of the Olympic Games. We were, the, the marina, the whole Olympic village was built around the Olympic marina. So we just walk out of apartment, down the road, down the stairwell, and we were at the beach ready to go sailing. It was an incredible venue, incredible atmosphere. Um, and then I had an amazing result. So uh, Barcelona was definitely a highlight and it very much changed my life and changed my journey from that moment on. Well, there's a lot in that answer and I'll probably... Oh, um, sorry! Try to, <laughs> <laughs> I'll try to pick through a little bit actually, but I just want to take you a wee bit further back because from what I can tell, you were more interested in being a dancer than a sailor as a child. Is that right? And sort of what, what changed? So, so... When I was a kid, one of my most earliest memories was putting ABBA on the old vinyl and the record player with a needle, closing the lounge doors and dancing around the lounge to music. I just used to love to dance. Whenever I had music, I was one of those kids that as soon as there was music, I was dancing. And if you jumped up and down too much, the needle would jump off the record and you'd get... You know, and, and it was pretty funny. So mum put me, my sister and I, into dancing 
and I was eight when I started dancing and I just loved it and that's what I did right up until uh, and I was still sailing and dancing until windsurfing came along and then when windsurfing came along it started to interfere with my dancing because I became hooked completely hooked on windsurfing because it was like dancing on the water it's balance it's coordination it's feel it's speed it's you know everything that dancing was and my first job was actually teaching dancing I started teaching classes uh, five-year-olds to dance when I was 14 so I was kind of like a natural teacher. I love dancing. I love creating. I love making. It was a very creative outlet. And when I started windsurfing and traveling overseas, I'd come back and a lot of my students had been gone and I'd have to pick up, you know, try and learn dances that I'd left. And it just became too much. And I decided, actually, I've got to choose. And so I quit dancing when I was 17, 18, and just went windsurfing full time. I'd left school and windsurfing was it. I, and I moved to Hawaii when I was 19 and lived in Hawaii off and on, because that's where the best sort of windsurfers were in the world. I'm not talking about Olympic sailing. And uh, you know, worked in different places, uh, cleaning cleaning, and doing all sorts of things when I was in Hawaii. And windsurf with some of the best wave sailors and things in the world, like Robbie Nash and Bjorn Dunkebeck. And yeah, it was an amazing experience. And so for me, windsurfing was like dancing on the water. It was a great, great transfer of natural skills. So given you were sort of ensconced in this professional board sailing circuit, um, where did that kind of ambition of going to the Olympics come about? You know, women's windsurfing wasn't even an Olympic event at the end of the 80s. No, that's true. And that's why I went into the professional circuit. But after 88 and Bruce won the gold, um, it was just like, well, if my brother can do it, I can do it. That was pretty much my thought. Well, he won a gold medal. It looked pretty cool. And I wonder if I could as well. So... So that's where the real idea came from. But I do remember, you know, my first memories of the Olympic Games was watching Nadia Comaneci score perfect tens in gymnastics on our black and white TV. And she was just a little bit older than me. And um, I remember bugging mum and asking her if I could go to gymnastics. And I flipped and I flopped and I mostly flopped. But that's sort of when the, the Olympics, sort of the entrancement of the Olympics uh, began maybe when I saw Nadia Comaneci. And the, and the cool thing was I've, I've got to meet Nadia Comaneci so many times since through my work within the International Olympic Committee because she gets invited to quite a few events. So I had to have a fangirl moment and run up to her and get my photo with her, which was pretty cool because it was her fault, really. <laughs> she was the, my first memory of the Olympics. Did, did you tell her that it was her fault? Yeah, yeah, I did. And she sort of looked at me with glazed eyes because I think lots of young, lots of women come up to her and tell her the same thing. You know, she was a hero to many, many young athletes, no matter what sport. So what was that kind of windsurfing scene like um, in those early days, whether it was the professional circuit or once that sort of Olympic sort of campaigning got underway? Because today it's it's very... Um, structured, you know, um, there's lots of sort of support and backup all, all over the place. What was it like for you, though, in the early days? Well, if I if I wind the clock back to when I went to my first World Championships, so I was just 16 in windsurfing, and my sister, Wendy, was, was 18. And we – and the reason why I took up windsurfing, actually, it's quite interesting, um, because it was the cheapest form of sailing – it was really trendy back then in the 80s because it, would, it kind of just started and it was evolving very, very fast. Um, even though I was a top boat sailor, like I, I'd won the Auckland Girls PCAST champs for three years. I'd won the Auckland Starling champs against all the boys um, one year. And But you get to, you have to move into sort of like the classes that give you opportunities to go overseas. And so I looked at, you know, which class was suited for my body weight, my shape, what I loved and my budget and windsurfing was the cheapest. You know, when you went over to the world championships originally they would supply all the equipment. So you didn't even have to travel with boats. Um, and there was no coaches around. Uh, we actually had no support. So my sister and I pretty much, you know, coached each other. Bruce was never home cause he was trying to qualify New Zealand for Los Angeles. So it was good actually, cause he'd leave a lot of his equipment at home and we could steal his equipment and go down to the beach and figure it out how to do it. So it was a, it was a long track to, to uh, you know, to get us to a certain stage. It, it, it takes a really long time cause we did have no coaching and now there is a lot more coaching cause you have to fast track these kids to get good enough 
um, as well. And, and when I went to my first world championship, Wendy and I, uh, you know, I was 16, she was 18. We'd never been on a plane. And we were flying all the way to uh, Scotland to the world champs. You know, we've never been overseas. The only way I've been overseas is on a boat when I was 10 years old, sailing with our parents. So it was a really big deal. And there was no parents going with us, just her and I flying all the way and catching trains and planes all the way to Scotland. And when we got there, you know, there was probably about six or eight of us representing New Zealand. And we had one manager, no coaches, no coaches on the water. We just had to figure it out. No one knew how to rig our windsurfers up. We just sort of blundered our way through it. And um, it was it was pretty tough, but it was also exciting because we were like pioneers of the sport, you know, uh, especially when you go to the Olympic Games the first time windsurfing's in there. So there were no sort of written rules on how you win a medal in female windsurfing. So we sort of developed it as, as we went along. And when, um, you know, we went to Barcelona, Grant Beck, who was a coach, you know, he coached for Bruce as well and Sol, he was an athlete. So we were self-coaching each other. Uh, and that's how we got so good. We worked together very tightly as a team to, to share all our information, share how to go fast, uh, um, share our funds to get as fast as, as we could. And windsurfers are a fantastic bunch of athletes, you know, very similar, like-minded, free-spirited, want to go fast, want to be free, um, a lot of us, we, yeah, it was, a, it was a different culture. It was a great culture, and I just loved it, and that's one of the reasons why I windsurfed for so long. One, because it was fun. Two, because it was always evolving. And three, the people were like my family. It's interesting you uh, mentioned that first World Championships that you went to as a 16-year-old. Do you remember where you finished? Yeah, second to last. <laughs> and I got – it was awful. <laughs> it was awful. I, I got so homesick. Uh, I think I cried myself to sleep every night. I couldn't understand a word um, the Scottish people were saying. You know, I'd never heard a Scottish accent. You couldn't just ring um, home to talk to mum. We had to go to a phone booth. They would call the operator. The operator would call the New Zealand operator. The operator would then call mum and dad. Then they'd have to ask if they'd accept a clicked call. It was incredibly expensive. And we didn't have a lot of money and so I, knew, I, I was only able to call mum once, and when I did and I heard her voice, I just burst into tears. Um, yeah, it wasn't a very nice experience, but sometimes when you have those bad experiences, those are the things that make you tougher and you realise how much you want it. And you realise that, you know, we were a long way behind in New Zealand because we were so separated from the rest of the world, and the only way that you were going to get good is to put the hours in on the water, and um, that's pretty much what I did over that next year. And yeah, it was the next year I won the trials, went to those world, women's world's championships and got a bronze medal. And I'd only just turned 18. So I really did have a natural talent. I was pretty lucky. So another of those tough experiences, and you mentioned it um, a few minutes ago, was um, breaking your wrist, I think you said. Um, how did that happen? What what happened to, to cause such a devastating injury? Well, us windsurfers, we like to do a lot of cross-training. <laughs> so whether it be surfing, mountain biking, scurfing, now foiling, stand-up paddling, all those sorts of things, skateboarding, that's what Bruce used to do a lot of, still does. Um, and with those types of sports, snowboarding, there's an element of risk. And we were scurfing, which is on a surfboard in the surf, being pulled by a boat into the surf, just like what they do on jet skis nowadays. But the boat wasn't really designed for the surf and we got caught on the inside of the whitewash and the boat tipped over and ran over the top of me with a double motor. So I was actually pretty lucky to be alive. Ouch. So then to be told that um, you might not ever windsurf again, how did, how did you take that news? Well, it's pretty devastating, but I'm pretty optimistic all the time I always see uh, the good in everything and sometimes that can be an asset and sometimes that cannot be an asset but in this time it was I refused to believe the specialist I was like that won't happen that can't be true uh, so I so the first thing when I was told I wouldn't win surprise I didn't believe him and yeah and then I did lots of I kept my fitness up did lots of witchy poo tra um, healing things oxygen therapy homeopathy vitamins, vitamins and all sorts of stuff and 
fortunately my wrist healed very fast and the injury the the, the pin and the screw that was holding my wrist together was good enough to enable me to windsurf. And so going into Barcelona, what were your sort of expectations? You know, had you been tracking well to that point? Well, virtually I won the trials and then we were on the plane to do a three-month campaign leading up until Barcelona, virtually like the week later. I can't remember exact dates. And we went to the world – because the world champs were on – I think they were in the south of Spain. And – I was really green, not very fit, not very good when it was windy. And I think I got maybe 13th or 14th at those world champs. And the French girl that was uh, that won the world champs, she was so fast. The boys would, the men would start first. We'd start 10 minutes behind, maybe a bit more. And she would pass many of the men. That's how fast she was. So... I, and her sister was second. So these two French girls were just trailblazers in the breeze. Maud Hubert was her name, and she was six foot two, skinny, tall, amazing leverage. And so I never thought in my head, oh, my God, if it's windy, she's, there's no way any of us can beat her. You know, she'd won back-to-back world championships. And so I was just sort of, well, all I can do is really concentrate on my own performance, trying to get faster and stronger, every regatta. Um, and then the last regatta that we did – uh, was in the Europeans up in Norway, and I ended up placing third at that European champs. So I had a huge learning curve um, and results curve, which was quite rewarding. So I, I really had no idea going into Barcelona how I would go, but I knew that I was every day on the water, I was just getting faster, more confident. Um, and when we were training just before the Olympics started, I was fast as most of the boys in the conditions that we had in Barcelona. So I thought, well, you know, I probably could, I could do pretty well in this, and yeah, it just unfolded pretty well. Not wrong. You won um, gold quite comfortably, I think. Was it eighteen points ahead of your nearest rival? So, for someone you know who'd been dreaming of winning gold and, and replicating what your brother had done, did the sort of reality of of your achievement live up to your expectations? Well, I really didn't think about it because you don't want to think about those things when you're racing. And <laughs> I remember um, going into the last race and Grant Beck came up and said, Barbara, you know that all you have to do is beat this girl and get three points in front of this girl and get one. I said, Grant, I don't care. Don't tell me this because I can't control it. I'm just going to go out there and do the best that I can. And he said, well, be careful because if you do really well, you could win and it could ruin your life. <laughs> So we just, I mean, he he was a joker, you know, and that was the best thing about Grant. He was very technically unbelievably great, but he would make light of everything. And so we just laughed our way through um, that Olympics. And going into the last race, all the girls got really feisty and many of them went over the start line early. So it it was, like I said, one of those Olympics where everyone else makes mistakes and I just sort of cruised through and ended up winning. And I had no idea really what it all meant um until I got home I think that's when it really hit and people just recognized you wherever you went and they were so everyone was so wonderful and coming up and congratulating you and thanking you and but it was a little bit overwhelming I'd have to say so did it ruin your life no it just changed my life <laughs> it did make it a bit awkward because you know, everywhere you went, people recognised you. So if you went, I remember on New Year's Eve, you know, we went to the pub and we were dancing and having a good old time and then someone just yells out, hey, I know you, you're Barbara Kendall. And then you kind of get swamped. So it was a little bit overwhelming at times. But then, you know, with every everything, you either sink or swim. And I realised too the the anonymity of it, winning, you know, a gold for the first time in 40 years. I had no idea any of these statistics when I got home. And I realized that actually you'd become a bit of a female role model. And so with that comes the responsibility of, you know, being a role model, being a leader, being somebody that young girls and women would look up to that, you know, girls can do anything. So there was a bit of responsibility, which I actually quite enjoyed um, as well as, as being able to influence people in a positive way. Well, it had been 40 years, and the one who had won 40 years previously was Yvette Williams. And I, I think I saw somewhere that she was one of the first to congratulate you for winning gold and, and join her in that club. Do you remember what she said to you? 
look, I don't, you know, it was such a funny, funny time because so much was going on in my life. The phone was running red hot. Mum and dad were being pulled in all sorts of directions. I was being pulled in all sorts of directions. It was a crazy, crazy few weeks when I first got home. And I remember a vet coming around and she spent most of the time actually talking to mum and dad because I was, it was just nuts, you know, things going off all the time. But Yvette and I did a photo shoot um, within months of coming home and we both put our blazers on and we both had our medals and that's when we had a really good chat and it made me realise, you know, this is a really elite, there's only two of us in the whole of New Zealand that have got gold medals um, for the, you know, at the Olympic Games in, in, in for one. So it was a, that's kind of when it really hit me. But she, she, Yvette and I crossed paths many, many times over the years following and had a special connection with her. She, you know, she lived just down the road from where we lived as well. And she was a very graceful, humble, strong, powerful, trailblazing woman. I'm sure there were many others who tried to give you advice. Um, so how do you kind of filter out the good from the bad? Um, you got to trust the people that are the closest to you that keep it real and keep you grounded. You know, I was very lucky that before Barcelona, I met um, my husband-to-be and we, we got engaged before Barcelona. And he's the most unassuming, down-to-earth, practical, doesn't do fuss, doesn't do fluff type bloke. <laughs> and so he would just call you out, you know, when you got too big for your boots, he would just say, he would say, pull your head in, you know, or if something didn't go right, you know, he was always, you had, he was one that I trusted the most. And, and my mum and dad, very, very practical. They'd been through it before with Bruce. Um, and those are the people that you trust, you know, your family and your closest closest people to you. So for that, a lot of the career, you did have Bruce and there was also Aaron McIntosh around. And the three of you were enormously successful. I guess what sort of impact did this have on you to have these other two guys? And did you kind of do everything together? Yeah, I mean, we virtually lived together for many, many years, travelled together. Uh, my husband joined the circus um, in 90, leading up into Atlanta as well. So he was part of our team. And, and so there were the four of us. And then Grant Beck would come in as the coach um, when he could. And my husband was very, very, very fast when it was windy. So he would actually beat Aaron and Bruce when it was windy because he's very tall. And then I was the light wind because I was the lightest. Um, so we had the, all the spectrums of the wind covered so between the four of us. So we were a pretty tight bunch, uh, living, breathing, eating, traveling around the world, sleeping. Because um, we had to save money a lot of the time time as well, you know. So we, we had some pretty interesting experiences over the years. So let's say you'd just been on your own and your brother wasn't into windsurfing and Aaron hadn't come along. Do you think you would have... Uh, gone on to enjoy as much success as you did without them? No, absolutely not. Um, particularly Bruce was absolutely instrumental in the success of windsurfing in New Zealand. Um, you know, he re him and Grant Beck, when they were when they went to the Olympics, uh, tried to qualify windsurfing um, in 1984 for Los Angeles. They were told by Yachting New Zealand at the beginning, no, windsurfing's not part of yachting. You don't have a rudder. If you guys want to go to the Olympic Games, you have to go over to the States and prove that you can actually do this and there is such a sport. So Bruce, uh, Bruce and Grant really paved the way for the success of windsurfing that followed. They set up a culture of working together, helping the younger kids come through, the athletes come through. So we have a, we always had a decent fleet in New Zealand of world-class windsurfers. And they were, you know, you'd go overseas and you'd be the benchmark for all the people that couldn't afford to get overseas Um how good you'd have to get to be the Olympic champion. And so when you've got an Olympic champion living with you, um, you know exactly how fast you have to be if you want to win. So he was a really great benchmark uh, for me at, particularly. And then for Aaron, as Aaron came through, and then, you know, we set this platform really for the, for the John Paul Tobins, the Tom Ashleys to come through afterwards as well. What sort of trainer were you? Were there times when you just couldn't be bothered going to training or heading to another regatta overseas? I never had that problem. I loved it. You know, I, I was driven. 
um, by that there was always something you could learn, something that you could improve on every time you go sailing. That's what's wonderful about sailing. You know, every time you go out on the water, there is something different. The winds is different. The tides are different. The waves different. It's hot. It's cold. There's sun. There's rain. There's, you know, that's what's that's what's kept me in sailing for so long and windsurfing for so long and. So you're always learning, and whether if you're learning about the weather, whether you're learning about equipment, whether you're learning about racing, whether you're learning about diet, whether you're learning about nutrition, that's the same thing, physicality, whether you're learning about mindset and psychology, it's a continuous learning journey, and sport was the platform for me to learn so much about life, about you know living on the smell of an oily rag, budgeting, learning about sponsorships, um, engagement, loyalty to sponsors, to whatever it may be. It was it, it was an amazing, amazing journey. So the next, well, the next part of the Olympic journey was Atlanta '96. You got silver, and then there was backed it up with bronze in Sydney four years later to complete what some call the rainbow. I mean, I don't want to gloss over it, but what sort of sense of accomplishment did you feel? after achieving that well after sydney and and i got all three um i went that's i I, you know you're always disappointed that you don't win a gold or a silver but (laughs) it was really cool to win the bronze and actually have all three you know to have it have a wee set and leading up into sydney you know I'd, i'd been back to back world champion So I was really like the one to beat. And we'd been living in Sydney off and on for the last two and a half years. So we got to know the harbour really intimately. And then when the Olympics came along, I remember that the wind blew from the same direction every day, the same strength, and we were put on the same course. Yet in the beginning, we were told that we we could be racing on five different courses. And Sydney's a very tricky harbour. So we spent a lot of time learning all the different courses and all the different tides and everything. And it was like Groundhog Day in Sydney. And then the girls, one of the girls that beat me, she won the silver, Emily Lux from um, Germany. She'd never, ever beaten me in a regatta before, but she had the regatta of her life. And then the Italian Alessandra Sassini, she ended up winning the gold and we'd always been arch rivals and it could go either way with her. So winning the bronze, I was just like, yay, you know, this is cool. I've got the set and, and I was retiring after that, actually. That was it. That was going to be, okay, I'm done. That's pretty, I'm 33 or whatever it was. And, um, you know, physically, they say that women meet their, they reach their peak mentally, physically and, and emotionally in their 30s. And I felt like I had. I'd reached my peak. So what made you keep going? Well, we, you know, I had my first child and um, Samantha, and she was a you know, beautiful child, as any any child is to their mother when you have your first baby. And then after, when she was about sort of 11, 12 months, um, I was like, oh, I'm a bit bored now. Um, I'd like to go for a bit of a windsurf. And I went windsurf and I went, and John Paul Tobin actually helped me a lot with that. He, uh, he gave me some equipment and said, Barbara, come sailing with us. And I went sailing and I went, oh, I've missed this feeling. So then the, the worlds were in um, a couple of, like six weeks later. So he got me some really fast equipment because that's one of the things that takes quite a long time in windsurfing is to find kit that's fast, even though it's one design. And said, Barb's, I've got some um, fast kit for you. Come to the World Champs. So then I thought, mm, that's a bit of fun. Let's give this a go. <laughs> we went to the World Champs in Thailand in, I think they were December. And so Samantha was only 13 months old. And I was just so happy to be windsurfing. John Paul had got me up to speed really quickly. My fitness was actually pretty good because I'd been walking a pushchair and carrying babies around. Um, and I was just on fire and ended up winning those world championships. And I'm like, blimmin' egg, I've just won a world championships at the age of 34. I might as well see if I can keep doing this all the way to Athens. So that's kind of what happened. Do you think that given you went to those world champs, no expectations, you know, maybe that was helped you um, Absolutely. To be in a you know in a relaxed and positive mindset and whatever happens kind of scenario. It totally was. It put me into the perfect zone that no matter what happens, I'm already winning because I had this amazing child that was the delight of my life, you know. And I have a great husband, and I'm doing something that I love. You know, all the boxes were ticked. So you were then, I think, second 2003 and 2004 at the World Champs. But then, obviously, you talked about having a child. How hard was it to juggle family with being an elite sailor? 
Um, it was actually not too bad with one child. Um, having one, Samantha was a really easy baby. She was, uh, she kept herself occupied for hours, doing things, playing things. She was very, very happy. Um, it, there was still probably the hardest thing was the logistics around traveling with a child because, you know, we, we spent a lot of time sleeping in yacht clubs and tents and in cars, but you can't do that with a baby. So there was a lot more logistics um, having to be more organized with that. And then because Shane was my coach, having to find babysitters uh, to look after her when, when the big regattas came around. And so fortunately, my mum and dad um, had sold their business. And so I, I, I used to say to them, hey, dad, do you want to come for a bit of a holiday in Spain? <laughs> and so they would come and look after uh, Samantha. Uh, while I was while we were racing, so yes, it was difficult, but um, it was also quite fun all at the same time. So you line up at Athens, and you've sort of talked about those Olympics in two thousand and four as being a regatta in which you threw away a, a medal. Um, what happened? Uh, we had a. I was I was always a little bit vulnerable when it was really really light winds. Um, that's when you do full pumping to make yourself go fast. And so it becomes a bit more of a fitness race than a, than a yacht race. And I wasn't a really big, um, I enjoy the tactical side of sailing and the, and the, and the flair and the technical side more than the physical side. And it was my weak point. And so I was a little unconfident. And in one of the races, it was very, very light. And I knew that to, to stay up there, I had to get a really good start. And I just pushed the line and was over early. And, and so I was disqualified from that race. So then you're going in, and that was right race two or three or four or something like that. And so you're going in with a disadvantage because you've already now got your discard. And so then we got about um, three or four races, five races, four races from the from the final final races. And there was a whole bunch of us. It was a slightly windy this race, and there was a whole bunch of us. And I just got myself stuck in this bunch of girls. And you sort of line up the girls that are around you. Um, you know, on the line and I couldn't see the pin. I couldn't get my transit. And there was a bunch of about five of us that went over or six of us that all went over the line early. So I was kind of pushed over the line by the girls around us because you can't really see exactly where the line was either. So that was a really bit of an unfortunate mistake um, as well. And I'd never really, I've never ever done that in a regatta before. I had two um, over the side, over course side earlys, um, and that cost me an Olympic medal. And then it was really hard knowing going into the last sort of three or four, five races that I probably wouldn't medal and to stay motivated and stay hungry and have to come home every day and sort of psych yourself out. Come on, Barbara, you can do this. You just never know. Someone might make a mistake if you have a perfect score. And then, you know, I won a couple of races and sailed incredibly well, but it just wasn't enough um, to no one else made mistakes. And so that was it. So how did you take that? Because what you're three time three time world champion, I think at this stage you were thirty six yeah. years old. I cried myself. I cried um, my way all the way back to the beach hysterically. Um, tried to pull myself together when I got back to the beach and couldn't. Had to avoid Pete Montgomery and get myself out of there very quickly because I was just it was pretty upsetting. And so it took me probably you know to be honest. Um, six months or so for maybe mostly probably maybe three or four months to really get over that because I'd really stuffed it up and you feel like you'd let everybody down that had supported you um you know and all the logistics and you know all the support that Yachting New Zealand done financially and, and Sport New Zealand and Shane you know just everybody Janice who'd been sort of um helping me mentally and physically you know I had this amazing support team and you just feel like you've let them all down and um, the only good thing was Samantha didn't care. You know, she had a mum back. <laughs> so, yeah, it was it was pretty tough. So did that result have any bearing on your decision then to go for a fifth Olympics in Beijing? Um, a little bit. But I think the, 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 the part that um, enticed me was the fact that they changed the board to the RSX board. So more a, a planing board on a fin. So it was more like shortboarding which we'd, I'd done in the World Cup when I'd been competing in the professional circuit. And I think that the the lure, if it had been on the same equipment, I probably wouldn't have done it. But because I was like, oh, I'd quite like to have a goal on this board um, to see if I can make this board go fast and, and what it's like. And so 
And Amy, my second daughter, was a little bit more of a tough baby, so I couldn't wait to get back on the water um, and avoid being a mum for like a couple of hours every day just to go sailing uh, when she when she came along. And plus the, 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 the challenge of trying to get really fast and master this particular board and, and equipment for, for Beijing. Did you feel like you succeeded in that? Yeah, yeah, I did. It was really interesting because I remember um, it was in Lake Garda in – 2006 and Amy was one and Samantha was five and I wasn't getting any funding at all so very very little amount of funding because I didn't have a result and I just got back into it and I had two babies and they you know so there was no funding for mums with two kids even though you'd been to four Olympics and so it sort of funded myself to get to to Lake Garda and the and the the circus the traveling circus so my husband is the coach and the two kids and all that sort of stuff. And I remember getting halfway through the regatta and I was placing 13th or 14th and I was absolutely shattered. I was so tired, you know, running around after two kids, training, racing. And I was just like, man, I can't do this. This is this is way too hard. And we had the rest day. And I remember I just lay in bed and just sort of went, you know, I can't do this and, and had a bit of a cry. And the kids came in and just smothered me in kisses and, and I went, oh, I don't really care what happens now. I'll just get, I'm just, I'll just do this regatta, and then I'll just retire, and that'll be it. Because just two cards, two kids is too hard. And so it was just another one of those moments where you sort of go, oh, I don't care anymore. I'm just going to go racing, just go do it, and whatever happens, happens. It doesn't matter. And then I ended up placing fifth, and that was enough to qualify for funding and qualify for um, Beijing. It's amazing how little things can uh, influence big um, decisions. So you were sixth in. Beijing um so how do you look back I guess on that one well it was really difficult um it was a difficult build-up because you know running two kids and being a mum and having to leave your kids at home for Beijing because it's not a great environment Qingdao wasn't a great environment for having kids you know my kids virtually grew up on the beach and in, in push chairs and around the rocks and it's not the cleanest place of Qingdao and I didn't really want to have the distraction of the kids as well. And because I, it was, it was, there was, there was a lot of things, a lot of things that were going against me um, leading up into Beijing. And, you know, when you hear in the media, someone writes an article, oh, Barbara, she'll be too old at 41 to compete in Beijing. We shouldn't be funding her. And, and I kind of wanted to prove the knockers wrong and go out there and, and do good. But I, I was tired, you know, I was actually pretty tired and, um, and I got sick right before Beijing and that's pretty much when that happens, you can wave your medals goodbye. So I was actually really happy to get, um, to get sixth in Beijing. But you kept going after Beijing. <laughs> you didn't retire again. Um, well, I did, yeah, it's sort of like, it was like a bit of a media thing. I, I didn't officially, I wanted to give it a little break and then just see what would happen for, for London. But I didn't actually jump on the board at all. Um, again, until 2011 and uh, well, actually it was 2010 maybe and I jumped on the board because one of uh, my friends from Australia Jessica Crisp had asked me to be her coach so I said look I'll come over and I'll be your training partner slash coach and just see how we go and so I came over and was still really fast but knew that I just couldn't have the energy to do another Olympic campaign with two kids and you know I'd be, I would have been pushing 44 45 um, for London so instead for London I was the coach of the Australians as you do yeah <laughs> what was it I guess it like to finally you know hang up the the board the sale um to finally make that sort of decision to not compete at the top level by the time um to be honest I actually knew um in the second to last race in Beijing and it was a light wind race, you know, and actually Beijing was a bit of a nightmare. We, we were training, we were pumping as hard as you could possibly physically pump. And I was going backwards against the current. That's kind of like what your nightmares are. If you, you know, you're dreaming in, the, in your bed and you're, and you're trying to run up a hill and you're just sliding backwards, no matter how fast your legs are going, you're just falling into a pit. That's what Beijing was like in real, pumping as hard as you could. And you're just going backwards. And, you know, in the second to last race, 
it was a really light race and I rounded the mark second to last. I'd never done that in my career before. I looked behind me and there's only one girl. And I went, I just started laughing and went, oh, my God, I've spent 25 years or 26 years proving to myself and other people that I can sail around boys really fast and I'm really good at it. I actually don't need to prove it to anybody anymore. And I just started laughing. So, And then I made the medal race and sailing up to the medal race, it was really windy and that's when I was quite good. Um, that was my strength, sort of like 12, 15 knots. And it was 12 to 15 knots and we were planing. I was going, oh, this is a brilliant breeze great way to finish you know the olympics and then 10 minutes before the start the wind just goes Bloom, and then we're pumping again and i'm just going you know what i'm done <laughs> and even though I, I enjoyed my last race but i kind of knew in beijing that that was it and i i've never regretted retiring i just feel so blessed that i didn't have to retire because of injury i didn't have to retire because someone beat me and i didn't have to retire just because i was a mother with two kids so was it liberating to to finish that last race and know that that was the end yeah it was actually it was uh, it was um it was sad in a way but I, but it wasn't because I was so ready to retire and just um not be pushing myself mentally physically emotionally anymore so we've you know we've looked at all the achievements over the course of your career you know how do you kind of look back on it do you feel like you fulfilled your potential absolutely yeah, I'm, I feel like, again, I, I feel so blessed that I wasn't forced into retirement because of injury. I wasn't forced into retirement because I wasn't good enough anymore. Um, I, I just feel like, you know, I was obviously born to windsurf and born to do what, what I actually did um, with, with sport and, and, and windsurfing and all the experiences and all the friends that I made. And um, it was an incredible, incredible journey that I feel really privileged that I was able to do. Well, even throughout that that journey, you were still you were quite well ensconced in the IOC. You talked previously about having joined in two thousand and five. Um, a lot of kind of athletes struggle with life after elite competition, and have been a big, big obviously part of yours since for about twenty five years or so. Did it help having this kind of outlet with the IOC? Absolutely. Um, so one of the programs that I. Um, really spearheaded within the International Olympic Committee was athletes, the Athletes Transition Program. So when I came on board, it was sort of like a topic that was just starting to be talked about. And so I was one of the athletes that, that got onto um, that particular area of work and worked really hard to push the IOC to start building programs and to put awareness around the fact that, you know, after retiring, a lot of athletes really hit rock bottom because they have no idea what to do next. So um, that was really one of my passions and I'm actually still doing it now, uh, uh, many years later. And I actually got a degree um, in career practice, a Bachelor of Social Services in career practice in 2011, 12, something like that, 11. I think I got I graduated. And because it is, it is a really difficult thing to do, you know, as an athlete, you think that that's all you know is just going really fast around course around boys. But actually, the amount of knowledge and skills that you've acquired from being a professional athlete, from running a campaign, from traveling around the world, from motivating a team of people around you, um, are completely and totally transferable to the workplace. And athletes aren't aware of that because they're so focused on their athletic career. So um, that's one of the areas that I really focused in on to build some great material and to see you know, what the IOC is doing now with Athlete 365 and the Career Plus program and everything that's happening now, it's it's really rewarding. Do you think that's probably been your biggest contribution as administrator? Um, well, it's, it's especially the work that I've just finished, actually. I think there's going to be quite a legacy that's left behind with this new Power Up program that I've just collaborated with, um, on, with a few colleagues and created and we're rolling out uh, next week. Um, to the global athlete community. So we've trained up 30 trainers all around the world in the material, to, so it's peer-driven, so it's athlete-to-athlete, athlete, this education platform. Um, and we're, you know, gonna, I'm starting to work with the NZOC 
performance for New Zealand to try and integrate it into um, athletes for New Zealand as well. So working with the New Zealand Athletes Commission here. So yeah, it's one of those things that I'm really passionate about because I know how difficult it was for myself. I know how difficult it was for my brother. I know how difficult it was for many, many, many athletes within New Zealand So and the world. So yeah, it is sort of like my one really big thing. What still needs changing, you know, whether it be policies or attitudes? Um, I think actually, I'm, I'm going to put it back to the athlete. One of the things now is the athletes are brought up in a system and they, um, they become systemized and don't have to think for themselves so much. Um, you know, everything's sort of handed to them a little bit on a plate and re- the real gift from being a professional athlete is from the learning that you do through doing it yourself and taking responsibility for your own life, for your own training, for your own training programs, you know, working obviously with your coaches and all those sorts of things, but really taking on that responsibility instead of just being walking through blindly and becoming just, you know, another number. And that that also being an athlete is a privilege. Um, It really is. You've been given a gift. It's a privilege to be an athlete. Many people aspire to be working in the sporting world, to be be an Olympian or whatever. And some athletes have this entitled feeling. And that's what, you know, that's what would be uh, my biggest thing would be to realize that it is a privilege and you need to play it forward. You need to be able to give back and um, and pass on what you have to other people so they can, you know, have the gift of, of sport. Do you think some of those athletes need to experience, I guess, some Hardship. setbacks? Yeah, because <laughs> yeah. that's why that's what that's the thing that sort of clicked with you, wasn't it? When you when you had your wrist break? Yeah, yeah. I mean, all the all the most difficult moments in my life, and my dad would always say it's character building, and and you know when you keep losing over and over and over again, you know it's character building. What did you learn? But really, it's really tough when you go through it, but that's when you actually learn the most and that's when you become resilient. That's when you become tough. That's when you get that grit. That's when you get that, that real passion for really what you want and you just get layer upon layer upon layer and that's what really makes um, great people. Now, um, windsurfing's obviously gone on a bit of a revolution at the moment with the introduction of windfoiling um, and so now that's the equipment that's going to be used in the windsurfing class for the 2024 Paris Olympics. What have you sort of made of the change well if I was 30 again I'd be there tomorrow um it's so fun you know I've actually been playing around a little bit with the the foiling windsurfing um but actually wing foiling which is uh where the wing the the sail isn't attached to the board and it's sort of like a kite surfing um kite with a smaller board and a foil and you just pop up and play around and you feel like a little bird playing in the waves or playing in the you know and it's very simple and it feels like you're flying and I just think, oh, God, if I was only sort of in my 20s again, this is this is the path that I'd be taking. This is so fun. But, um, yeah, so it's really great that they have, you know, windsurfing's now taken that next evolution. It just like when the RSX came in 2008, um, this is the next evolution, which is really exciting. If I was a young kid, I'd be going, that's what I want to do. I don't want to sit on a laser. <laughs> I want to go flying. So, um, yeah, it's really cool. And just talk to me, I guess, about um, your um, experiences on Dancing with the Stars and Celebrity Treasure Island. Because I'm, I'm, you know, everyone in the yachting uh, world knows who you are. And there's certainly a, a lot of people in the um, in New Zealand who re- remember you from all of the Olympic success. But I'm guessing that some of the younger generations might know you from those. So, you know, what was those experiences like for you? Yeah, so one of the one of the benefits of being a celebrity, you get asked to do all sorts of weird and wonderful things. And I've been a girl that always says yes to things if it's slightly different and slightly adventurous and will take me out of my comfort zone, something that I've never done before. Um, I, I always see those as opportunities and I go, yes, I don't know how to do that, but I'll figure it out and, and just blunder my way through. It's a bit like when I became an IOC member in 2005, I just said yes and then I sort of, found my way through and so when I got asked to do Dancing with the Stars it had been 23 years since I danced and so I was really spastic when I first started I thought I would be a lot better than what I actually was and it took me it took me such a long time to um to master that and I hated 
the live shows, I found that really uncomfortable trying to do a dance that you'd only learned sometimes three days ago on live TV in these very flash, sometimes skimpy costumes. <laughs> it was very uncomfortable, but it character building. It definitely built my character and um, made some amazing friends. You know, Johnny, who I danced with, still very good friends with him and his wife, Christy. And then to get asked to go back on it again last year, I was just like, yep, I definitely want to do that. And it was so fun just to do one week um, and relive that amazing experience. And then I'd always wondered how I would go in like a survivor type program, thought I would actually be okay at it. Um, and so that when I got asked if I'd like to go on Celebrity Treasure Island, I was like, yeah, well, that'd be interesting to see, you know, that's out of my comfort zone. I've never done anything like that. It'd be interesting to see how I go. And yeah, that was quite an experience as well. I was actually okay physically and all those sorts of things, but I didn't didn't really factor in um, the starvation. So um, we didn't eat. We only had rice for like, I don't know, it was something like 10 days, and I lost five kilos, which is a heap for someone because I'm quite little. And um, what I did experience is my brain, um, my cognition, I lost a lot of cognition in my brain from lack of good nutrition, which was very, very interesting. And so that was an amazing journey and lesson to learn about how important nutrition is for your brain. So what did you chow down on when you got uh, voted out? Um, it's funny because you didn't really feel like eating a lot of food. You just wanted really plain food. I had chicken and uh, vegetables, actually, lots of chicken and vegetables when I came out. What does the future hold then for Barbara Kendall? You know, we've we've talked about the past, um, but what what next? Well, you know, I've been working head down during COVID, working on with the IOC um, on the Career Plus platform with the different education programs, and so we've just, like I said, I've launched this Power Up and delivering it next week to the global athletes. So that sort of kept me occupied, and I'm very passionate about that area. So. I'll probably keep dabbling in that area. Uh, we want to roll out a new program within Oceana. So I'm being contracted by the Oceana National Olympic Committee to help with their education programs, particularly around self-leadership. So we'll be working on a similar, um, what we've done with the Power Up Me Map um, for this leadership in, in um, Oceana. And I'm also actually being involved in a company called ARIA, which is an artificial intelligence company, which does natural language generation from data. And it's a very futuristic company. And so I've been floating in and out of the artificial intelligence world as well. You just can't sit still, can you? <laughs> and I've got two teenage daughters, and that keeps you very, very busy. I bet. Well, it's been fascinating uh, to get an insight into your career. Um, before I let you go, though, I do need to ask you your worst wipeout ever feature of the show that um, all guests get asked on towards the end of their interviews. So, Barbara Kendall, take it away. Your worst wipeout ever. Well, that would be when we when I was living in Maui and we were wave sailing. Uh, in the big waves, this is that was always a passion of mine to learn how to sail in those big waves. You know, wave sailing, surfing, and so that's why we went to Maui, and it took me many years to master it. Uh, and I remember it would be so exciting when the big swells, winter swells, would hit, usually around um, November, October, November, when the first winter swell would hit, and you drive down the hill and you'd see the koi droid coming in from way out to sea, and your heart would start to pump you get sweaty armpits because these waves are big and um, you go down to the beach and, and rig up and the the biggest I'd ever sailed in is pretty much getting close to double mast high. So our windsurfing masts are four and a half metres. So you're looking at nine metre faces on these waves as you come hurtling down them. You don't want to fall off on one of those, but um, I remember one time we were falling off, I fell off on one that was only mast high, so it's a four and a half metre face. And the number one rule is whatever you do, don't let go of your equipment because that's your flotation. So when you come off the top of one of these waves and you might get it a bit wrong um, and you start to fall you've got, and you get plumbled by the whitewash, you've got to really hang on no matter what. That's, that's the rule. And I remember hanging on and hanging on and hanging on and sort of uh, wondering why I wasn't really coming up and then came up and my boom had broken and pretty much all my equipment had washed in and I was just hanging on to um, and onto the boom. So, yeah, and then you'd have a big swim back in 
uh, back in through the whitewash. And usually if you have one of those crashes, you end up sitting on the beach for the rest of the day because you're exhausted. So that's probably my one. Ouch. There wasn't a reef underneath or anything else to complicate matters, was there? <laughs> no, I never got any. Um, they call them hookeeper who tattoos. Um, you know, in Fiji, you get them from surfing the reefs there as well. But I, I don't have any hookeeper who tattoos. I have plenty of other scars from doing other things, but not from <laughs> not from wave sailing. Um, just uh, you talked about you were a surfing uh, president and helped get surfing into the Olympics. How did that association come about? So I met the president of the International Surfing Association, um, Fernando Aguera, and he was very energetic, um, motivated, inspiring, amazing integrity, completely honest, not ego-driven, not power-driven, not money-driven president. And if I, and I love surfing, and if I wanted to work for an organization, well, in the IOC, it's quite, there's a lot of different characters. And if I wanted to spend my volunteer hours doing something, I wanted to work in an organization where it was very nimble, very quick to make decisions, small executive board driven by the best ideas for the sport. When you get into organizations like World Sailing, it's very old fashioned, takes such a long time to implement change in organizations like that. And I wanted to work with someone quick, fast, young youth culture. And so I offered Fernando, I said, look, look, I, I've, I'm on the inside. Um, I can help you. I'd love to be able to help you get surfing into the Olympic Games, anything I can do to help. And so the next, so after six months, he rang me up and said, Barb, we want to put you on the um, executive board to become a vice president. We need somebody helping us sort of campaign to get the votes to ensure surfing gets into the Olympic Games. So I got it. I became a vice president and, yeah, worked with Fernando to get surfing in the Games. Another one of those just can't say no, huh? Just uh, yeah. <laughs> keep, keep the Olympic Association going strongly as well. Nice one. Well, that's um, probably a good moment to um, to finish on. Um, yeah, as I say, it's been a, a terrific sort of uh, hour or so just to reflect um, on your career. And there's obviously a few more um, chapters to, to evolve in the next few years as well. So um, thank you so much for your time. It's been great. Thanks, Michael. Catch you later. Well, that's it for another episode of Broadreach Radio. Thanks for tuning in. If you've got any feedback, then you can email me at michaelb at yachtingnz.org.nz. Otherwise, I'll catch you with the next episode in a fortnight. Take care.